Oh God, we, we sing again a prayer. Our songs, our prayers today have been come. Please come. Embarking as we are on a new and uncharted journey, we dare not, we cannot go alone. And so please, in the moments that are left, let the Holy Scriptures speak to us clearly for the glory of Him who is our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen. I would like very much to put a jigsaw puzzle together with you today, right now. I don't know. Do, do, you, do you like jigsaw puzzles? Huh? I love jigsaw puzzles. They're not over a hundred pieces. They, they're just fun. They, they challenge you and uh, I get, you know, 250 500. We have a, a, a game cupboard full of jigsaw puzzles. 500 is kind of the max. We, once, we did, once we did 750, my family knows that is my intellectual limit. I mean, that's it. And so you can imagine my shock when this Christmas I was opening up a gift from my dear daughter, Kristen, tore off the paper to discover she had given me a beautiful, new, 1,000-piece jigsaw puzzle of the Titanic. Now, you know, because we opened up Net 98, the next Millennium Seminar with the Titanic, it's just been kind of a, a memento-collecting theme for me. And so, But a 1,000 pieces, I mean, come on, is it humanly possible? Can you do a 1,000? Well, nothing ventured, nothing gained. And so, because our parents were home, that's two grandmas and one grandpa, Every time we got a break, we would huddle over that dining room table. You do this. You huddle over the table and everybody starts pouring over those 1,000 pieces. And I'm happy to tell you, hallelujah, in four days, we got it done. And then, you know, you, you, do you like to do this? Do you like to pull one piece off and just put it in your pocket and be the last one? Isn't there a joy? You get the whole family. Hey, I got it. I found it. And oh, you put it in, and oh my, what a thrill. Well, I need to tell you that actually I got two, two jigsaw puzzles for Christmas. God gave me the second one. There are only seven pieces in this puzzle. But as I began to slowly over the holiday, over a period of days and nights, put those seven pieces together. At first, I saw a picture emerging... I said, oh, come on, we, 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 we've had this picture gathering dust on our shelves for years now. But as that last piece went in, I tell you the truth, it suddenly hit me. Here is a fresh, new, compellingly relevant picture for a new millennial journey. I couldn't believe it. I said, come on, this, is the, this isn't the old puzzle. I've been doing a lot of praying, wondering how, how, how are we going to get into this? I mean, how am I going to share with you? Maybe it won't happen to you as it happened to me when I saw those seven pieces perfectly fitting. I prayed about it. 
And I believe what we need to do is you and I need to put that puzzle together, together. I mean, together, you and me, seven pieces. I'd like to do it right now on this first Sabbath of a new journey. I hope you'll jot these pieces down. Just scribble them down. You'll see them on the screen. Just jot them down because you need to contemplate the picture in the quiet of your own study one of these days very soon. So let me give the seven pieces. You can take them home. Jigsaw piece. Here we go. Jigsaw puzzle piece number one. That great grand final book of Scripture, the Apocalypse. Revelation. Open your Bible, please. We're going to have an old-fashioned Bible study. I'm telling you, seven of them. We'll just put them out there, finish the puzzle with seven, and go home. Revelation chapter 18. I want to move right into this with you. Revelation chapter 18. I'm in the New Revised Standard Version. doesn't matter to me what translation you have, but oh, I do hope in this new journey that you bring a translation with you, please. Revelation chapter 18, verse 1, John is writing, After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his splendor. That's how my translation goes. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you need to note immediately, obviously, this is no junior angel here. This is not a rookie angel like you might find in Touched by an Angel. Forget it. What we're dealing with here is clearly, John is... Absolutely clear on this. The one that descends in this thundering shaft of light descends from the very throne room of heaven itself. You know how we know? Because now the King James says, I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great power. It's, it's not power. The normal word for power is dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite. This isn't the word power. It's exousia. This is authority. This is the power of position. This is not a rookie. This is not an underling. He comes down representing the Godhead itself. And note it very carefully. When this angel descends into the dark, murky shadows of this fallen rebel planet, the entire world is set ablaze with his glory. Therefore, ladies and gentlemen, we have only one piece before us on the table right now. But whatever is being described here is of divine appointing at the end of time, and it is truly, spectacularly, gloriously an event of global proportions because the whole world is set on fire. All right? How do we know it's the end of time? Oh, because of what follows. We don't have time to go through this chapter, but let me just read three verses from this chapter. Verse 2. Let's look at verse 2. The angel comes down in verse 1. Verse 2, he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It has become a dwelling place of demons, a haunt of every foul and hateful bird, a haunt of every foul and hateful beast. Drop down to verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you do not partake in her sins, so that you do not share in her plagues. The plagues are about to fall. Finally, verse 8. Therefore, her plagues will come in a single day, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned with fire, for, the, for mighty is the Lord who judges her." Ladies and gentlemen, Babylon, the counter-religio-political system that has opposed God for centuries. Babylon is front and center now. Babylon is fallen. By the way, have you heard that before? Remember the three angels that streak across the midnight heavens in Revelation 14? Same message. This is the second angel's message. Identical message. Babylon is fallen. Clearly. My friends, Revelation 18's fourth angel represents a grand and glorious finale to the mission and message of the three angels of Revelation 14. The, the angel of chapter 18 is the finale of chapter 14. 
Why? What's the big deal? Why does the angel come down with great glory? Jigsaw puzzle piece number two. Let's put it up. Piece number two. Just turn a few pages back. Maybe just one page back to chapter 14. Why does the angel come down? Aha! It is obvious. Something's going on here. the, The earth is being prepared for harvest. In fact, take a look at this. Verse 14. This is the finale of the three angels. This is the finale of their message. How do we know it's a finale? Because you have the three angels in verses 6 through 13 and then verse 14. Let's just read verse 14. Then I looked and there was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. I want to read a few more verses, but stop it right there. Ladies and gentlemen, may I direct your attention to the rose window high overhead here at the front of the church. You can just look. You don't have to look at the screen. It's right here. That is an artist's portrayal of Revelation 14, 14. You see the sickle in his hand? It is Jesus on the clouds. It is harvest time. Now, let's read on. We just read 14, Jesus on the clouds with a sickle. Verse 15, And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice, that's megaphone in the Greek, with a megaphone voice to the one who sat on the cloud, Use your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Verse 16, So the one who sat on the cloud swung his sickle, that's Christ, over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Harvest time. Verse 17, Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Then another angel came from the altar, the angel who has authority over fire. And he called with a megaphone voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. Finally, 19. So, the angel swung his sickle over the earth and gathered the vintage of the earth and he threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Without equivocation, the apocalypse here portrays the end of time and it uses a harvest metaphor or motif or theme. Where did John get this idea? Come on, John, where did you get it? Jigsaw piece number three. Let's go to, let's go back to the Old Testament. Now look folks, I wish we were doing this by page number because how are you going to find the book of Joel? Find the book of Joel, please. And here's how you do it. You got Isaiah, you know Isaiah, you got Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Once you get to Daniel, you get to Hosea. It's a little prophet. We call them the minor prophets. Minor, not because they're unimportant, but because they're small. Hosea, Hosea, then Joel. Joel's number two of the minor prophets. So I'm sitting here talking and not looking it up myself. Find a Joel. Joel chapter 3. Hey, John, where'd you get this harvest motif? Where did you get this gripping, dramatic picture as a symbol of the end of earth? Oh, here it is. It's got to be here. Joel chapter 3. Let's begin reading in verse 13. Put Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in and tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Ladies and gentlemen, mark it. Grain and grapes. There it is. Final harvest. Grain and grapes. What we had in Revelation 14. What time of earth's history is it? Verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Okay, look, Dwight, we got three pieces on the table. Yep. What do we know so far? Clearly, we know this. Both the Old and the New Testaments use the imagery of harvesting grain and grapes to describe the final harvest of the saved and the lost. Okay? Grain and grapes. It is the harvest motif that provides the clue for understanding what in the world is Revelation 18 one about. Now, 
in rapid fire sequence, the pieces fall in place. Let's go to jigsaw piece number four. It's right here in Joel. Just turn one page back. Go to Joel chapter two. It's amazing. Incredible. But take a look. Oh, he said, I've seen these pieces before. Wait a minute. Put all the pieces together. Then you make the conclusion. Okay, Joel chapter 2, verse 23. O children of Zion, be glad and rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain. The early and the later rain. Now, those of you that have the old King James, it says latter, doesn't it? The early and the latter rain as before. Notice now, the threshing floor shall be full of grain. There's the grain. The vat shall overflow with wine. There are the grapes. Grain and grapes. And oil. There's a harvest. The harvest has to be brought to a state of ripened readiness before it can be harvested. The question is, how does God bring His grain to that ripened, ready state? The answer, clear. He sends the rain. Mark it down. He sends the rain. You know, this is, this is phenomenal. Just studying this this last week. It's amazing how the meteorological patterns for the land of Palestine actually became the significant symbolism that both Old and New Testament prophets embraced. Let me tell you about how, if you were a farmer in Israel back then, and I have a feeling it's still even like uh, today. In fact, well, it's, this is true of most subtropical and tropical countries. Isn't this true? They have two seasons. What are the two seasons? You tell me. What are the two seasons? Wet and dry. They don't have hot and cold. <laughs> it's wet and dry. I was in Israel a couple of summers ago. It was June. It was hot. I mean, we're talking dry city. So they have two seasons, wet and dry. Now, in, in the Palestine uh, uh, meteorological pattern, the rains would begin in November and last all the way through, off and on, off and on, through March. Then the dry season comes in in April, and boy, it's bone parts dry all the way through the summer into September and October, before hopefully, God willing, the rains come again in November. Now, obviously, if you're a farmer, you want to plant grain? You want the grain to grow up to a harvest? Are you going to plant it in the summer? Crazy. Of course not. You're going to plant when the rains come. And you're going to hope the crop grows during the rains enough so they can come to full fruit before the dry season comes. Now, it's interesting that the rainy season here, from November here to April, is framed by two major rainfalls. The first rainfall is in the autumn. Their agricultural year always begins in the autumn. The first rainfall is called the early rain. It's the rain that came to soften the soil, loosen it up, get it moist after a parched, barren summer. We need it soft so the farmer can, can turn it over and the seed can go deep. It's got to be soft. So once the rain comes, the seed goes in. See, hallelujah. But now the seeds, first the sprout, then the ear, and then the corn, the grain in the head, but still not fully ripe. And so the farmer is praying, oh God, please, at the end of this rainy season, give us a good dousing to bring the grain to a final shock of golden glory. They call the spring rains the later or the latter rains. Ladies and gentlemen, when Joel says... Has God saying, I'm going to send you the early and the latter rains. That's what he's talking about. But jigsaw piece number five makes it profoundly clear. Joel does not care a hoot about the rain patterns in Palestine. He has something much more significant on his heart. Okay, this is piece number five. Jot this down. You're keeping record of all five of these. Here is verse 28. Same chapter. Then afterward, God is speaking. Verse 28, Then afterward, I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. 
And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves in those days, I will pour out My Spirit. If I'm talking about the early rain, or if I'm talking about the latter rain, I want you to know, community of faith, God is speaking. I'm not talking about rain. I am talking about My Spirit. I will pour it out at the beginning of the cycle. I will pour it out at the end. Do you understand that? God says, I will pour on everybody, male and female, young and aged. Peter obviously caught the clue. Jigsaw piece number six. Only seven. Here we are at number six. The day of Pentecost. Let's go back to the New Testament. Peter got it. Yep. And because Peter got it, we can get it too. Acts chapter 2. Go to Acts chapter 2. Oh, this is the shining summit that begins the great story of the church after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. The day of Pentecost, let's read it. Acts chapter 2. Let's begin, let's begin in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Verse 2, And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. Verse 4, All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. The place explodes. I tell you what, it was a thrill for me. Two summers ago, archaeologists are convinced this is the actual site of the Pentecost upper room. A few feet lower in the earth. This is the site. To stand on that site and to realize the crowds, the masses, like electricity, the word goes out. Something's going on in the south quarters of, of Jerusalem. The masses crowd into those tiny little alleyways. And I tried to imagine Peter standing in front of those masses. Hold it, hold it, stop. Stop. What are you saying? We're drunk. We are not drunk. And then Peter speaks the words of Joel. Drop down here to verse 16. No, Peter is speaking. No, this is what was spoken to the prophet Joel. Verse 17. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out My Spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams even upon My slaves, both men and women in those days I will pour out My Spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show portents in the heaven above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. And finally, verse 20, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Wow! You know what? I am so grateful that Peter, or was it Luke who wrote Acts, or maybe both, intentionally added some words to the prophecy in Joel. The words at the beginning of verse 17, in the last days, you can go to Joel. Those words are not there. They added the words, in the last days. And by that insertion, it is clear that the Bible applies the prophetic words of Joel both to the outpouring of God's Spirit at the beginning of the history of the church and then again there will be a final, glorious outpouring of divine power at the end of the history of the church. And why did the early... Hey, hey. Why did the early rains come? Why did the farmer want the early rains? Because the soil needed to be broken up and moistened so that the sea could go deep. That's why I came at Pentecost. So the gospel sea could go deep. How many people baptized on that day of Pentecost? You remember the number? What was the number? Was it 3,000? 
breaks up the soil. The seed now is going in like crazy. But why will there be a final, later, latter rain? Why does a farmer want that rain? Because the harvest is not quite ready yet. He needs a final outpouring to bring that grain to its golden maturity and fullness. God needs the same. He begins the Christian journey with an, out, with an outpouring. He will end it with an outpouring. I'm asking you, this is the, we have, what do we have, six pieces now? I'm asking you this question. Could it be that Revelation 18 is a dramatic prediction of a supernatural, apocalyptic outpouring of divine power upon the earth one last time before Jesus returns? Does that make sense to you? I mean, what, is, what, what did, what did uh, Revelation 18, how did it go? And I saw another angel come down from heaven was it clothed with great power and the whole earth was lightened with His glory. What did God say in Joel? In the last days, God says, I will pour out My Spirit upon all flesh. I'm asking you a question now. Could it be that what Revelation 18.1 is all about is in fact the second coming of the Holy Spirit? First coming to begin His ministry, Pentecost. Second coming to wrap it up, the latter rain. I don't know what you're thinking. You say, oh, come on, Dwight. Come on, pastor, preacher. Oh, come on. Six pieces here. What's so new about this? What's so fresh? What is so awesomely relevant for a new millennium journey? I'll tell you what. It suddenly hit me when I had those six pieces together. It hit me. Revelation 18.1, listen carefully, is the only event left before the final cataclysmic chapter of earth's History is closed. It is the final event before the crisis of crises comes to human civilization. It's the last chapter. It's the next to the last chapter. The latter rain comes, number one, to bring a global harvest to full ripening, and number two, to prepare the people of God to face that final crisis. And I'm telling you, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, a time of trouble such as has never occurred in the history of the human race. That rain comes to steal a people and ripen a harvest. Therefore, if the second coming of the Holy Spirit is what stands between us, between you and me, and the final chapter of earth's history, I ask you, in the name of God, I ask you, why are we not begging and pleading for that outpouring? Huh? What do you want to wait? What do you want? 2100, is that it? You love the sound, 2100. Well, you won't be around to even hear 2100. What do you want? 2200? I'm not into dates and numbers. But it occurs to me, if this is it, we ought to be asking. I want to be blunt with you right now. May I? I, I, No, I, I want to be blunt with me. I'm going to put this sentence on the screen so that it sinks in. Unless, and I'm speaking about all of us here, everyone here, I don't care how long you've been in the church, what your position in the church is, unless we are preparing for the second coming of the Holy Spirit, we will never be ready for the second coming of Jesus. I'm telling you the truth. You won't be ready. No possible. Impossible. And quite frankly, I am deeply concerned that we are neither preparing nor are we ready, we who are ministers and we who are the people. We're not ready. Who cares? We are one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom, and I'm very comfortable. Fine, thank you. And I know, by the way, the little drivel we put up when we try to excuse 
our lethargic status quo and our lack of spiritual power. Here's what I hear. People say, oh, come on, Dwight. Look at, please, please, don't get excited. God is sovereign. And when God is ready, jolly well ready, He'll be ready. You see, the Father knows the times and the seasons. It is not for us to know the times and the seasons. So we'll just wait. We'll get the latter rate when God is ready. Wrong. I want you to read these somber words. March 2, 1897, in a magazine you're well acquainted with, Review and Herald. Let's put them up on the screen. Look at these words. We are not to trust to the ordinary working of providence. You know what that means? It, isn't just, it ain't just going to come. It ain't just going to happen. It isn't just going to fall in the natural flow of things. We are not to trust in the ordinary working of providence. We must pray that God will unseal the fountain of the living water. Let us with contrite hearts pray most earnestly that now in the season of the latter rain, the showers of grace, I love that, the showers of grace that they might fall upon us at every meeting we attend. Do you know how many meetings take place on the campus of Andrews University and within the Pioneer Memorial Church at every meeting we attend as a community of faith? Our prayers should ascend that at this very time God will impart warmth and moisture to our souls. The convocations of the church, the assemblies of the home church, that's Pioneer, and all occasions where there is personal labor for souls are God's appointed opportunities for giving the latter rain. Man, if they're going to call a meeting and say, come on and come on out and pray, I want to be there. Every meeting of this community of faith is a golden opportunity to ask. The problem is nobody's asking. We're not asking. Are you asking? Am I asking? Nah. I mean, I got a career. I got a business. I got an education to pursue. What do you think I want this to stop? Well, that would be a novel thought. What then shall we do? I end with jigsaw piece number seven. Put it up on the screen. Jot it down. Isaiah 44, verse 3. This is from the New King James Version. Let's read it together. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour My Spirit on your descendants and My blessing on your offspring. Ladies and gentlemen, I ask you this single question. Isn't it time we paused in our rush to the future to recognize our parched need before Jesus Christ? Isn't it time? Look, could this be simpler? Could this piece be clearer? If you're thirsty, ask me, and I will pour out my spirit on you. Jesus, Jesus was the one who what was this? Luke eleven thirteen. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who what's the word there? To those who what? Ask. The ancient prophet Zechariah cries out, Zechariah ten verse one, ask for rain. Ask in the season of the latter rain. Ask. Hey, and this is phenomenal. Look at this, folks. The asking can be ignited by just one person. Look at this sentence. One person. One member working in right lines will lead other members to unite with him or her in making intercession for the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Just one. You may be the one. Just one. Let's look at, look at this other one. When churches are revived, it is because some individual, singular, some individual seeks earnestly for the blessing of God. Then souls are aroused to seek a light blessing and a season of refreshing falls on the hearts of men and women. Ha ha! That must be it. That, that explains it right there. No wonder the Prince of Darkness is so intent 
on leveling his arsenal at you and at me. Keep him preoccupied. Don't, do not let them stop and ask. Keep one foot in the world. Keep that other foot in the kingdom. He thinks if he's got feet in both, he's saved. Keep it that way. He will never think to ask. Don't let him pause. Get his life, get her schedule so filled she wouldn't think about stopping to ask. Don't let them ask. Because if they ask, they get. He knows his kingdom is doomed. So we don't ask. One last quotation. This, this, this is somber, but it's got some good news tucked away. Now let's put it on the screen here. There is nothing that Satan fears so much as that the people of God shall clear the way by removing every hindrance that the Lord can pour out His Spirit upon a languishing church and an impenitent congregation. The devil is scared stiff that there might be a spiritual revival in the hearts of this little community of faith. Scared stiff. There's nothing he hates more than the thought. Let's go on. If Satan had his way, there would never be another awakening, great or small, to the end of time. But we are not ignorant of his devices. It is possible to resist his power. That comes the good news. When the way is prepared for the Spirit of God, hallelujah, the blessing will come. Satan can no more hinder a shower of blessing from descending upon God's people than he can close the windows of heaven that rain cannot come upon the earth. What do you say to that? He cannot stop it. His only strategy, I don't know him any better than you, I don't think, I hope, but I'm telling you, he's got one strategy. Don't let him ask. You may be the one. And he's saying, keep him away. You know what? I got an email this week. From a young adult, a member of our parish, a young professional in our community up in St. Joseph. And this individual said, you know, Pastor, I don't know what's going on, but I was impressed today to fast and pray for you all day. I'm telling you what, my friend, you may be the one, just one, who believes that if you begin asking, you can set in motion a nuclear chain that can ignite a fire that will eventually set ablaze an entire civilization. It takes just one. I'm not worried about your colleagues on the job. If you will ask, if you will pray. I don't care about your family. If you will pray and ask, just one. You're it. A few nights before New Year's Eve, I was downstairs in my study at home reflecting on this old but new jigsaw puzzle that we've just put together. Together. I'm sitting down there brooding, kind of wondering to myself, where do we go with all this? I mean, what, what is it that lies ahead for us as a people? Where will this new millennial journey lead the world? Where will it lead the church? I'm thinking, I'm wondering. And finally, I lean over and switch on my laptop computer. And then I, I try to put down in writing what my heart was wrestling with. I wasn't intending on sharing that writing anywhere with anyone. But as I came to the end of this study this week, I said, I, I'm going to do, I'm going I'm to read it to you. I want to read it straight off of this page. I entitled it, Reflections on the Advent of 2000 A.D. The advent of a new millennium has been on all of our radar screens now for several years. We first began contemplating its reality when the Y2K computer conundrum became conversations in the public domain. 
And the closer we have come to its eventuality, the more we have been accosted by the massive media hype with its usual overbearing blend of liberal and nascent disregard for anything apocalyptic, along with its condescending reporting of fundamentalist reactionary foolishness, namely the world will end in Jerusalem at midnight, January 1, 2000 A.D., and on and on and on. You've heard the stories. And I must confess, and I'm making this confession, I must confess that I have been affected by the media perspectives and analyses and editorializing that have been going on now ad nauseum as we draw near to the inevitable moment when the odometer of time will change all its digits and we will be living in 2000 A.D. I have been affected, and here's how, in that I have determined that I would not fall into the apocalyptic fanaticism trap and I would not let myself be carried away by what sociologists and historians have decreed is predictable human behavior at the turn of any millennium, namely an over-preoccupation with end-of-the-world fears and hopes and prophetic shenanigans. And so I determined to stay away from those themes, choosing instead to focus on the more practical realities of loving our neighbors and caring for the disenfranchised and the marginalized of society, the vital mission of this community of faith on the eve of Christ's return. But ever since picking up a book, and I have the book's title here and the author here, but I'm not going to mention the author and I'm not going to mention the title. I don't want it to get in the way. I'll mention it next week. I'll tell you who the author is and I'll tell you the book. Ever since picking up a book while at my parents' home, it's a new book, I flew out in December to California to speak and then bring my folks back for the holidays. Ever since picking up that book and then procuring a copy from my own library when I got back here, I have returned to the theme that has stirred deep within my own soul ever since I and we undertook a prolonged and concentrated journey into apocalyptic interpretation in a series called Countdown to the Showdown back in the winter of 1992. Coincidentally, eight years ago today, that series began. The subsequent book by the same title, Countdown to the Showdown, only strengthened my own personal conviction that human civilization is truly poised on the brink of eternity, no matter which apocalyptic model one uses. Reading this author's treatment of apocalyptic interpretation has reminded me that, in fact, we continue to live upon the brink of eternity as a human race. Not a brink defined by the timeline of 2000 A.D., but a brink nevertheless and ominous reality, given the state of disequilibrium throughout the world, U.S. economic prosperity notwithstanding. As a result of reading this gentleman's book, I have revisited the writings of Ellen White and re-examined her cogent material on, on, on apocalyptic interpretation. And I am even more deeply convicted that it is high time we as a community of faith return to the apocalyptic framework that has defined our mandate and message as a global movement of peoples. In reading the books of Fernando Chai, an Argentinian Bible scholar, I was in Argentina, you remember this last fall, an Argentinian Bible scholar and exegete, I have been reminded that this remnant community of faith is poised before the next to the last chapter left in the prophetic scenario of Revelation and a book called The Great Controversy. And that is the Revelation 18 portrayal and prediction of a global spiritual enlightenment symbolized by the descent of a fourth angel to join the mission and message of the three angels. Adventist commentators are united in linking that Revelation 18 prediction with the biblical promise of a final outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the latter reign of the Spirit upon the people of God before earth's final harvest. It is that latter reign experience that has become the focus of my own brooding and reflection. 
I know it was once fashionable to discuss the latter rain and ponder its future eventuality, but over the years, one hears less and less about that superpowered spirit revival, no doubt because of our desire to avoid a panicky sort of motivation for pursuing the Christ walk. We say, let us simply seek Jesus for the merits and glory of knowing our Lord and Savior. And surely such a sentiment is apropos and timely. Nevertheless, I believe we have drifted from a corporate consciousness of our need for spiritual revitalization and reformation and revival and renewal. So much of present Adventism reflects a comfortable, negotiated peace with the world, allowing us as a people, particularly in the West, to live without excessive conscientious objection in both the camp of the world and the camp of the kingdom. I fear that like Israel of old, we shall call down upon ourselves the cry of Elijah, how long will you go limping between Baal and the Lord? It is also the cry of the beloved Apostle John, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. We as a people, young and aged, and by the way, and aged. We as a people, young and aged, have negotiated a compromise with the kingdom of darkness. And here's the compromise. We will partake of your wares as a trade-off. We will go lightly on raising hue and cry against the fallen system of this world society. Consequently, the church in the West is no danger to the kingdom of Satan. Our occasional forays into the world, like Net 98, to claim a few souls for the kingdom meet their usual dark resistance. But life pretty much settles back to the status quo, doesn't it? A bit of the world and a bit of heaven all wrapped up in our already bulging lives and agendas and entertainment choices. As long as we belong to both kingdoms, which incidentally Christ declared is impossible to do, for we will love the one in the end and hate the other. As long as we belong to both kingdoms, the devil has no reason to stir up our corporate pot and afflict us with any significant opposition. On the other hand, let this people determine that the advent of yet another century after 1844 and now the advent of a new millennium is sufficient cause for alarm and awakening. Let this people with renewed passion seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness, divorcing themselves from the amorous embrace of a doomed societal value system. Let this people cry out to God for His heart and His mind and His love for a lost world. Let this people go to its knees in humility and repentance and a corporate pleading for the outpouring of the Spirit of Jesus. Let this people seize this millennial moment and splendid divine opportunity to reflect, revisit, and reform our priorities. Let this people cast aside the things of this world. We sing the chorus, turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of this world will go strangely dim. Let this people cast aside the things of this world and invest its energies in a new local, national, global initiative to save lost human beings before the final storm breaks across this planet, then, then the promised outpouring of Joel 2 and Zechariah 10 and Acts 2 and Revelation 18 will come and the church will at last experience the second coming of the Holy Spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no preparatory sign that will signal to us the Spirit's Pentecost II second coming. It will come at the sovereign will and decision of God. Nevertheless, even a cursory reading of Scripture could lead one to conclude we are living in the season of the latter rain. 
Revelation 7's injunction to the four angels to hold back the winds of strife and destruction until the loyalty of God's friends is clear and secure cannot gainsay mounting evidence that earth is experiencing incrementally and gradually but surely and truly the releasing of those winds as it figuratively were one gale at a time. And why are the four angels commanded to hold the winds yet a little longer? Revelation 7 declares that the servants of God might be sealed. And what is the sealing? It is the final preparation intellectually and spiritually of a people to stand for God through the last battle on earth. It is the confirmation that indeed the Father has a host of children who would rather die than dishonor His name and His glory. The sealing is the final ratification that the work of Christ through His Spirit is indeed a global reality in the lives of redeemed men, women, and children from every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. People who have taken up their crosses and have chosen to follow Jesus for they did not cling to life in the face of death. As Revelation 12.11 declares, the sealing is the last act in the drama of God preparing a people for the end. The latter rain comes in order that God's last harvest might truly be brought to a ripened spiritual state. Both events are simultaneous. Both events will occur during the crescendoing ecological collapse of our world and the moral disintegration of human society. In the midst of that spiritual darkness, God will have a people who Daniel describes in chapter 12, shine like the stars of heaven. A people who are turning multitudes from death to life by pointing them to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For that reason, the time has come for us to ponder the second coming of the Holy Spirit. For that reason, this series of studies could not be more timely for that reason, it is imperative that the spiritual leadership of the Pioneer Memorial Church be called to join in leading this congregation into a heightened new spiritual seeking after God, longing for the heart of Christ, to love a lost world back into His embrace. For that reason, it is time we begin to think very seriously about going home. If Revelation 18.1 is the last chapter between us and the final chapter, then surely it makes sense to all of us today that we begin to ask and plead and earnestly petition our Father in Heaven for the outpouring of His Spirit on a languishing church. I mean, James 4, 2, ye have not because ye ask not. Ladies and gentlemen, why not ask? What do we have to lose at this juncture in history to ask? To ask and to ask and to ask that the heavens might be opened and that the glory of God reflected in the Spirit of Christ might be poured out on this earth. Well, that's it. That's the seven-piece puzzle. I need to tell you that Wednesday night, we're going to gather right back here 
in this room to begin a new season of our and house of prayer for all people. Wednesday evening journey. And all I want to do is personally and pastorally invite you to come and join in a new corporate focus on the second coming of the Holy Spirit. And, and when we come here, it won't be Bible study time. We're going to come here to pray from 7 to 7.45. I'm hurrying back from Shreveport, Louisiana because I told them I have got to be back for Wednesday night. Whatever your journey is in this new, le- new year, I want to earnestly invite you to take advantage of this meeting whose sole focus will be to seek the fullness of the outpouring of Christ's Spirit. It's time to ask. It is the season of the latter rain. It is the time of the second coming of the Holy Spirit. We must ask. Let's, let's, let's kneel together and pray. Holy Father, here we are. Worship's over. A new week beckons us and we must go. But dear God, for one more moment, we'd like to tell you that we really do desire to live with an undivided heart for Jesus in this new year. Oh God, you know the games we play with ourselves, the self-talk that we use to rationalize the choices we make. But dear Father, if this is the season of the latter rain, if Revelation 18, 1 is the next to the last chapter, and there's nothing between us and that chapter. Holy Father, please stir up our Adventist hearts. Stir us up with a new thirst, a new hunger, a new longing for the fullness of Jesus. Lord, there are no tricks. There just is no magic here. And we're not seeking to command you to do something. But we really do want to go home. And all this time, we've been asking you how much longer, how long. And now we discover that in fact you've been asking us the question, how much longer till you really want to come home? Please, dear Father, on our knees, do whatever it takes in our lives 
do whatever it takes in the life of this congregation. Do whatever it takes in the life of this university. But bring us to a state, a thirst, a hunger for the second coming of the Spirit of Christ. We are your people. We would love your world with your heart. And so take us this moment and every moment of the journey that stretches before us. In the name of Jesus Christ, who has promised that if we ask, we will receive. In Christ's name, we pray together. Amen.